from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Presented by 2020lifestyles.com. This is The Blitz. The first look at the top stories in Seattle sports. They don't make them like us. We're not like everybody else. The rundown on everything Seattle sports on your way to work. Swing a fly ball. Deep right center field. He did it again. And the stories everyone is talking about. We got to do it for each other. Yes, sir. This is the Blitz at Six. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Blitz at Six. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Friday, July 17th. We made it to Friday, folks. Yes, we did. A really disturbing story breaking yesterday. We had heard it teased a couple of days this week, but the Washington Post reporting that 15 women who previously worked for Washington's NFL team have alleged sexual harassment and verbal abuse by former executives and front office staff. We'll dig into those allegations, plus what they could mean for owner Dan Snyder and his ownership of the team down the line. NFL players, meanwhile, are expressing doubts about a return to play. Training camps just around the corner right now. And yesterday, J.J. Watt, one of the latest, to voice his concerns, a list of questions that he posted on Twitter. How close are they to answering those? Especially as certain states, particular states, are seeing a rise in COVID-19 cases and what that could mean for potential shutdown of training camp. So we'll discuss ahead in this hour. Also, some updates from Scott Service on Julio Rodriguez and Dee Gordon and Tom Murphy. All ahead in this hour. Unfortunate news yesterday for Julio Rodriguez. But uh, the kid with the, the smile that goes a million miles, I know, will be uh, great even in the rehab process as he had to do last year. So we'll discuss the details of that. Right now, let's get to your headlines. Fifteen women who previously worked for Washington's NFL team have alleged sexual harassment and verbal abuse by former executives. The Washington Post reported on Thursday over the past week, the Post reported their investigative findings to the club. And since then, three team employees accused of improper behavior have departed. Among those accused of misconduct are former director of pro personnel Alex Santos, former assistant director of of pro personnel Richard Mann, and longtime radio play-by-play announcer and senior vice president Larry Michael. All three departed the organization within the past week. Others named in the report are former president of business operations Dennis Green and former chief operating officer Mitch Gershman. There are no allegations against owner Dan Snyder or former longtime general manager Bruce Allen, who was fired at the end of 2019 after 10 years with the franchise. Snyder declined several requests for an interview, according to the Post, as did Allen. In a statement, the team said it had hired D.C. attorney Beth Wilkinson and her firm, Wilkinson Walsh, to conduct, quote, a thorough independent review of this entire matter and help the team set new employee standards for the future. The Washington football team takes issues of employee conduct seriously. While we do not speak to specific employee situations publicly, when new allegations of conduct are brought forward that are contrary to those policies, we address them promptly, the team said. The allegations span from 2006 to 2019, which is most of Snyder's tenure as owner. And the allegations can be separated into two categories, according to the Post. The first is unwelcome overtures or sexual comments, comments uh, sexual in nature. And then the second is requests or pressuring to wear revealing clothing and flirt with clients to close sales deals. None of the women accused Snyder or former longtime team president Bruce Allen of that inappropriate behavior. 
But they also did express skepticism that those two individuals would be unaware that this was going on, that this toxic culture was rampant in their organization, that they were totally unaware of the inappropriate behavior. One of the women quoted in the post said, I would assume Bruce Allen knew because he sat 30 feet away from me and saw me sobbing at my desk several times every week. A huge problem, too, that the article notes is the lack of human resources department or any type of means of reporting this inappropriate behavior. The team's human resources staff consists of one full-time staffer who also performs administrative duties at team headquarters and is reportedly responsible for more than 220 full-time employees. In a statement, Washington pointed out that the team hired a new human resources manager in 2019, and this employee works with the team's legal department on any issues involving employee conduct. But still, a very small human resources uh, department and a couple of the women mentioning that as to how, how would they go about reporting these things, even if they wanted to. Uh, one quote from Julia Payne, former assistant press secretary in the Clinton administration, who briefly served as vice president of communications for Washington in 2003. She said, quote, I have never been in a more hostile, manipulative, passive aggressive environment. And I worked in politics with such a toxic mood driven environment and the owner behaving like he does. How could anyone think these women would go to H.R.? Now, as I mentioned, the team hired D.C. Attorney Beth Wilkinson to review the organization's protocol, including its culture policies and allegations of workplace misconduct. But this right here is a conflict of interest right out of the gate, right? Anyone performing an investigation into your business practices should probably not be on your payroll. Yeah, that's that's pro tip number one. What happens next for Dan Snyder? That's the huge question. It had been previously reported that three minority minority shareholders who are were seeking to sell their interests in the team. The minority shareholders have hired an investment bank firm to help vet potential buyers, according to Adam Schefter. But could Snyder be forced to sell the team? Could he face any ramifications or any punishment by the league itself? Uh, that remains to be seen. But still, the ignorance is an excuse to don't buy that as a leader. One of your tenants is accountability. And if you're ignorant of the toxic workplace culture that is going on within your organization, you still have to be accountable for it. Emphasizing that they want to play Houston Texans star J.J. Watt, he posted a list of questions that NFL players still need answered before training camps can open. The Texans are supposed to open the regular season on Thursday, September 10th at Kansas City, but rookies for both teams are scheduled to report to camp on Monday for COVID-19 testing. Watt, who said he was part of four NFL Players Association calls with hundreds of players over the past two weeks, posted the questions to Twitter. He also emphasized the fact that they want to play. He put, we want to play at the beginning and the end of the list of questions that he put online. But they included, uh, we want to be as safe as possible. We have not received a single valid IDER plan, infectious disease emergency response plan from any team or the league. We don't know if there are preseason games or not. We don't know if there will be daily testing, semi-daily testing, etc. We don't know how a potential positive COVID test would affect contracts, roster spots, etc. Nothing has been agreed upon regarding what training camp will actually look like and how the ramp-up period will work. And then, of course, ending it, we want to play. Among the requests in the player's recent proposal were opt-out clauses for at-risk players uh, receiving salary but not bonuses, players with at-risk family, who could earn an accrued season and benefits, and players who leave their team after reporting if they decide not to play. 
Players are also requesting a stipend of $250,000 guaranteed to all players if they show up to camp and everything is shut down. That rises to 500000 if the season starts only to be shut down. The NFL responded to the NFLPA's counterproposal on COVID-19 related reopening protocols on Tuesday night. A major unresolved issue being whether COVID-19 should be classified as a non-football injury. NFL teams that place players on the NFI list are not required to pay those players. So that is a big point of contention and big point of discussion right now. We heard from Sam Ocho, NFLPA vice president, earlier in the week saying, uh, what are their goals as of now? Well, the most important goal is having a system in which we understand the threshold of when games will get canceled or when practices will get canceled. As of now, the only system is a a commissioner who gets to decide by his own standard if and when anything gets canceled, no matter how many outbreaks there are. And that for us is not acceptable. There needs to be minimum guidelines saying if if this many people have have, have COVID, if this many teams, as they start to practice their play, play against each other, that's the main issue. Another issue is the preseason games. We don't – we have a, a team of doctors, jointly decided medical professionals, both by the NFL and NFLPA, that have said that um, there needs to be somewhat of a six-week uh, on-ramp into playing games. And so the NFL kind of postures if they wanted us to come early, but then obviously we've seen the cases rise, and now they're saying that preseason games are acceptable, even though the, the, the team of doctors said it probably isn't the best idea to play four or even two. And so we're still trying to get a great reason from the NFL why we should play two games. For us, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's too risky. Yeah, looming ominously in the background of all these discussions is the rise in coronavirus cases in states like Texas, Arizona, and California, just to name a few. The increasing possibility that those states could implement shutdown provisions that would limit large gatherings. And if that happens, it's possible teams in those states wouldn't be able to hold training camps. An earlier NFL-NFLPA agreement stipulates that teams are required to hold training camps at their own team facilities this year, and that if any team cannot open its facility, no other team will be allowed to open its facility. So that could have ramifications across the league for all teams involved. And these questions still need answers. JJ Watt pointing that out on Twitter yesterday. You can see that uh, his full list of questions on his Twitter, um, but also wanting those questions and, and, and emphasizing that they do want to play. They just want to do it safely. Coming up next on the Blitz, uh, some sad news for Mariners fans. Uh, hoping to see Julio Rodriguez out there soon. An injury for him. We'll explain it's next in the Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. From the Alaska Airlines studio, this is the Blitz. Welcome back to the Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz hanging out with you Friday, July 17th. Well, not the best news yesterday. The worst news. Julio Rodriguez, unfortunately, suffering a hairline fracture. Uh, The top prospect for the Mariners appeared to suffer an injury at the end of drills on Wednesday. He dove for a ball in right field as part of a base running drill after the team's intra-squad game. They've been practicing some um, just... Basic, uh, basic fundamentals at the end of intra-squad games. And preliminary x-rays revealed that Rodriguez suffered a hairline fracture in his left wrist. Scott Service explaining what happened to Julio. Yeah, that was uh, certainly the, the, the low light uh, of the day, no question. Uh, at the end of the day yesterday, we were doing a, 
uh, base running drill, just reading balls off the bat, but we put a defense out there. It's a drill we've done many, many times. And um, shorter game, that would be a good day to incorporate that. So uh, we were doing that. Soft liner was hit in the right field. Julio came in and um, instead of just pulling up and playing it on a hop, decided to dive for the ball, um, jammed his wrist in the ground. And he had some x-rays done last night. Uh, he does have a hairline fracture um, in his left wrist. Uh, he's getting some more tests done today. And We'll find out more uh, as the day goes on today. So I uh, feel horrible uh, for Julio. Again, a uh, young player uh, in a drill. Uh, you know, he's going all out. Uh, that's what we expect of our guys. But uh, unfortunate that happened. And I, I feel really, really bad for him. He had a great day yesterday leading into that. You know, he banged the ball off the wall against Graveman. And, um, you know, hate to see that happen to anybody. But certainly a young, young player. And, Really important for, for him to get some at-bats and experience, but uh, you know, he'll be on hold for a while. Julio went hitless in his first two inter-squad games, but got his first hit, which was a double off a center field wall against Kendall Graveman, just a little while before, unfortunately, suffering his injury. Scott Service mentioning or asked if he talked to Julio after he was injured. Yeah, I talked to him you know, right after it happened in, in the training room and just trying to you know, get him to stay positive. You know, He went through a hand issue last year early in the season he got hit by a pitch I believe and uh missed some some time there and he just said to me you know I'll be okay and at that point we didn't know uh, what the results were going to be of the x-ray or anything like that but um Julio's got such a great attitude he's one of the more uh upbeat positive young players I've ever been around he just doesn't get down on himself um and we love that kind of infectious smile that he brings every day so um I'll talk to him when I see him here when he gets in this morning, but he'll be running some tests here the rest of the day to kind of figure out how this gets treated and get him back as soon as we can. Yes, uh, Julio actually missed two months last season after getting hit by a pitch on the hand, which also resulted in a hairline fracture. And I got to speak to Julio this off season and asked him what it was like during that rehab process. I mean, as you say, like, I love to compete, like, I'm always trying to do my best, like on the on the field. But whenever I got hurt, like I was, I love now. I have to compete, like doing my work, my my workout, like trying to get back. Like I said, I like that was my motivation. Like don't slow down. Like work out in the training room. Like that was that was everything I I was able to do at that moment. So I was I I tried to do my best there. Everywhere I go, I I was trying to do my best. Meanwhile, D. Gordon was scratched from the lineup for Wednesday's intra-squad game. He appeared in an intra-squad game last on Monday, and Scott Service not able to get into the specifics about D.'s absence. Scott, how about D. Gordon? He, he scratched him late there. Yeah, I really can't comment on the D. Gordon issue at this point. Um, I think uh, you know, that's just where it's at. I have to leave it, leave it at that. We'll, we'll see what today brings. But Scott's service on how Kendall Graveman looked earlier this week as well. I uh, looked great. Uh, I was really happy with, with what I saw, which didn't surprise me at all. He's been throwing the ball really good. Um, you know, I, I mentioned uh, a couple of days ago that he's got a lot of strength back. He was sick in spring training. He had lost some weight. Uh, I think he's probably put on – he's got 15 pounds of his normal weight back on him now. So uh, the ball's coming out really good. I thought he did some good things yesterday and. You know, Kendall's a sinker slider guy. He likes to keep the ball at the bottom of the strike zone. You'll see a lot of ground balls when he's out there. But yesterday he elevated a few fastballs. It's something he's worked on in the downtime. And it can be a real weapon for him because hitters get so locked in at everything being down at the bottom that you can get the ball by some guys up in the zone. And when he's throwing that hard, it's, it's pretty easy to do. It's very effective.
Coming up next on The Blitz, we also got to hear from Jerry DePoto yesterday on Danny and Gallant about several of the young prospects, particularly Jared Kelnick, and when we could see him in the majors. It's next, right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines studio. Welcome back to The Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Friday, July 17th. Little blue scholars to start your Friday off right. Um, We discussed Jared Kelnick a little bit earlier this week, and that's been a topic of conversation across all shows on this radio station when we might be able to see him in the majors. We'll dig into that and hear from Jerry DePoto on that subject in just a moment. But up first, Michael Janiti, who uh, is the co-founder of Spot Track and the current editor on some of the big deals that got done this week. Big deal with uh, Derrick Henry with uh, four years, $50 million. And on the surface, you, you think about it, you think, well, okay, they're out of the clowny sweepstakes. And yet you tweeted uh, today, I think it was, that you said that the cap hit actually went down with that signing. So you, you think Tennessee's still in play for clowny? So I think that cap hit going down was a big part of them actually signing Derrick Henry because it went down $4.2 million, which is a significant drop. Yes, they had to add essentially $3 million in cash. Because, you know, two tags would have been 22 million. They're going to pay him 25 million over the next two years. So three million in cash to lose four million in cap this year. And absolutely that puts him in place for Clowney now. If there's a, a situation where Clowney's worth 15 million over one or two years, Tennessee can actually get that done now. So I think they're maybe the leaders in the clubhouse for Javen Clowney. As far as his deal goes, and I saw the tweet you sent out uh, yesterday, sign Jadevian Clowney outright or trade for Unique Ngakwe in a $17.8 million tag, part of which you might be able to get the Jags to pay for. Uh, is, is that something you think is, is feasible in, in terms of the Seahawks, or are you talking about just any team out there with an interest? Yeah, I mean, look, the Seahawks did it last year with Clowney, and we haven't seen too much of that, but once you see something, everybody wants to copy it. So, of course, I'm, that's exactly where my head went the second that Ngakwe didn't get, uh, you know, traded and or extended yesterday. You know, he's locked into that $17.8 million now somewhere, uh, and that can be manipulated with much of like Clowney was last year, split in half between Houston and Seattle. So if that's what it takes to get Jacksonville to trade him out the door, and I think they will, I, I really don't think he's, he's long for that team right now. Um, then they may have to take a couple of million off that to make it happen. And certainly, you know, Tennessee, Seattle, these jet, the Jets, the teams I've talked about for Clowney are also got to be in on him as well. Hey, Michael, do you, do you kind of scratch your head over going back to Derrick Henry, just the running backs not being able to, to get the deals that they want? It just seems like it's kind of a, <laughs> the, the running backs are kind of a tragic figure in, you know, considering what they, what they contribute to their teams and how important it, the running game is. I mean, every year, seven, eight top 10 running teams make it to the playoffs and, um, you know, it, it's just interesting that the that running back just can't get paid and pretty good deal for, for Derrick Henry. But you, you could argue that he maybe should have gotten a little bit more than that. And just the importance of running backs, I think, is it, for me anyway, it's just kind of a, a head scratcher. So it, it's a twofold question, of course. It, I understand the devaluation because you really just can't have one. He's, I mean, he is an anomaly where he is sort of, the, you know, the one trick pony out there. Every other team is running running with two or three, maybe even four running backs, pretty much the entire season. So I'm happy for him getting getting the money because he was certainly deserving of it from that last year. But you're right. Listen, this is a two season NFL league right now. I mean, you start off the first two months of the season, it's all passing. 
It's all downfield passing. The weather's nice. Everything's good. But the second November hit, or Thanksgiving comes around, everybody turns to that running game, and the running game is what gets you into the postseason. So, yes, these guys are not only banging helmets all you know all day every day and putting tons of touches on the ball, but they're they're essentially the uh, the breadwinners to get these teams into the postseason come the second part of the year. So I, I do think these guys will continue to get paid. It's just not going to be top dollar. You're going to have m- many more positions ahead of them in terms of the finances. Yeah, you know, here in Seattle, we wonder about Chris Carson, and uh, he's playing out his final year here. Uh, what do you? What's the perception from from you, Michael, on, on Chris Carson? Because he, uh, Carson seems to make some of these top ten running back lists, and and not so much on others. Yeah, he's middle of the pack, and, and unfortunately, he's got a big, big list of names around him heading towards free agency. So. You know, he's going to be devalued and then devalued again, most likely. If I had to guess, he's going to be in like the Mark Ingram conversation, which is he'll, he'll latch on with a good team or he'll stay where he is, but it's going to be cost controlled in the, in the four and a half to five million dollar range when it's all said and done, even though he's worth double that, statistically speaking. But I just think there's going to be too much supply out there for a lack of demand right now. That full interview is available for you at 710sports.com if you want to check out Michael Giannini of Track. He is always a great guest and hearing from him on some of the big deals that got done ahead of the franchise tag deadline this weekend was great. Jerry DePoto also joining Danny and Gallant this week to chat about young prospect Jared Kelnick when we might see him in the majors. Hey, remember the time that Jared Kelnick hit two home runs in, the, in one inter-squad game? That was awesome. <laughs> it, was, it was awesome. I heard a lot about it. But the, yeah, I think, uh, you know, Cal is, is among the most talented players in, in all of minor league baseball. And we feel like one of the premier prospects in the game, uh, like Julio Rodriguez and some of the others in our camp, he, he gets – celebrated a lot both internally and externally and uh and it's deserved that now because we're here in seattle and these games are being streamed i think a fan base and a media base a larger media base are able to to see his talents on a on a regular basis and they're notable i mean he can really hit he's got power his at-bats in, in these camp games have been about as mature as anyone in the in the field and you know, it's hard sometimes to remember that he's 20 years old and his, his experience level is particularly limited. So it's a, he is, he is a very accelerated prospect who we feel we're incredibly excited about. And as we've talked about in weeks past, our, our goal for 2020 remains unchanged in that we are committed to the appropriate development for this team over the next 18 months. And, and that includes Jared. And we're going to take it day by day and then see what the right thing to do here is. But it's so fun to watch. when And, and it's pretty loud, I will say, in a fairly empty stadium when he barrels one up. And and, uh, and it hasn't just been those Smell two you later. There's been a lot of live ABs and just crushing doubles. He, he's looked great. He has looked great. And he he turned 21 today, Jerry. And, and I say that because I'm going to try to make him sound older than he is to try and accelerate the development. <laughs> yeah. Happy birthday to Jared Kalanick. Um, I found myself, and I'm probably not alone, I was doing research and digging in, trying to find out, okay, what's the what's the development pattern? How many at-bats did Mike Trout have above double-A before he got called up? And it turned out it was like 349. Other examples of guys like Griffey Jr. or Juan Soto that didn't, didn't have, I think, I think Soto had like eight games. And I wanted to ask from, from a player development standpoint, what, what does a player gain by that experience? Because it's almost unprecedented for someone to not have 
uh, extensive or a couple hundred at bats at double A or higher before they come up. Why is that so important in the development process? You know, it's, it really, it's the foundation that you gain at the low levels. And it's, it's not just what's happening on the field. It's what's happening off the field, how you work in the gym, the, your, your level of maturity on and off the field, how you deal with adversity uh, and, and the challenges that potentially come with struggle. Now, where, why the upper levels tend to move so much quicker is you spend some time at the, at the low levels or more time at the low levels learning those coping skills. And, and then once you get to, to the upper levels and you've shown the ability that once you get punched in the mouth, you can get up off the mat. And, you know, there's, there is not a lot of these players and these are the best players in the world. You know, I, I've said this before that, you know, the least impactful player in the major leagues is an awesome player. And by the standards of what's, what's available in the world. And most of them have never struggled before they come into pro ball. And the elite players and prospects like Jared Kellner, they, they've not struggled until they get to the major leagues. But eventually they will all struggle. <laughs> and we, our goal in player development is to, is to create a, a holistic model that prepares them for that. When the struggle comes, when the, when the breaking balls get sharper, when there's three breaking balls in four pitches, when the, 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 the slump, the 0 for 12, 0 for 15 that will inevitably occur happens. And, you know, so it's not always about just the performance on the field. It's about so much more than that. But seeing the advanced pitching, the, the command, the, the breaking balls that are, look like strikes for longer, once you get to the upper levels, that's a critical part of the player's development. Otherwise, when you get to the big leagues, you are very prone to chasing because the, the, the nuance of a major leaguer's breaking ball is most of them have the feel and command to make it look like a strike for long enough that you, you go because in the minor leagues, it stays in the zone. And that's not necessarily the case in the big leagues. It's, uh, it's, it's, it, it, things don't always turn out the way they seem out of the pitcher's hand in the big leagues, which is much more common in the low minors. You mentioned that every single player goes through struggles. And, and for Jared, if you guys continue the approach, it's unlikely that he is going to see much of a challenge after the regular season eventually begins. But is there, is there a struggle for you right now, for someone who is looking at Kalnick, who is so confident right now? It's really, I just love it. I, I, I love every single bit of it. Is there an element where you almost want to find a way to make a confident guy struggle so that maybe you can expedite that process? How does that work? Because I imagine it's a very tricky balance. Yeah, you don't want to crush confidence. Part of the, the reason for an extended developmental time in baseball is, is for just that. You, know, you, you don't want to crush the confidence. And some of that is due to the fact that it's a sensitive thing for competitors, you know, that type of confidence. Some of it is because as soon as they start their major league career, you know, be it service time or options, you only have so much time to, to, to develop those skills before you run out of opportunity to send them back to the minor leagues. And our goal in player development, you know, as, as unrealistic as it may be, is that you know, with the, the players we feel like have the opportunity to be everyday players in the big leagues, when we promote them to the big leagues, we want them to stay. We won't. We don't want them to have to go back. Uh, and 
Yeah, that, that's the goal. But you don't want to you don't want to push someone into adversity unfairly because now we might be, you know, harming something sensitive like a competitor's confidence long term, and we don't want to do that. That was Jerry Depoto on Danny and Gallant yesterday, and you can listen to that full interview, Jerry Depoto Show on Seven Ten Sports dot com. Just click on the podcast tab. Up next. On the Blitz, Alex Rodriguez may have stepped on a few players' toes when he mentioned how he thinks the league should move forward. He mentioned uh, something akin to a salary cap, but then later apologized and stressing that he never said salary cap. I'll explain the details of this story. Hoping to purchase the Mets, of course. It's next in the hot list right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. From the Alaska Airlines studio, this is The Blitz. It's time for The Hot List. Holy mackerel! The headlines for the day in sports every morning at 6.45. Heck yes! What are we missing here? A full breakdown of the top stories of today on your morning drive. Let's go! Rogers Place in Edmonton is one of the two arenas the NHL will utilize uh, in its plan to restart the season this summer. But unfortunately, it suffered water damage last night as a significant storm swept through the city. In a statement, the Oilers Entertainment Group said it was assessing the damage. And at this time, they are confident it will not hamper our planning and preparation. And we will be ready to host the return of NHL hockey as Hub City. Western Conference teams are scheduled to travel to Edmonton on July 26th with exhibition games beginning July 28th and then meaningful games beginning August 1st. Edmonton will also host the Conference Finals and Stanley Cup Finals, absorbing the remaining Eastern Conference teams, which are beginning the restart in Toronto. The NHL had previously narrowed its list of potential hub cities down to 10. Las Vegas was mentioned as a a favorite in there, but ended up selecting two cities in Canada because they felt more comfortable staging games in areas where the coronavirus was under better control. Edmonton has only had uh, 15 COVID-19 related deaths since the NHL paused on March 12th. The NHL is, meanwhile, creating an Olympic Village-type setup in a district around the arena. So teams are staying at a hotel connected to Rogers Place and other walkable hotels. No word on if the storm created any damage to that. Linda Cohen, who uh, ESPN Sports anchor, but also does ESPN in the crease, talked about recently the uh, the NHL bubble in Canada. Right decision. Uh, as we all know, where we didn't just land on this planet or in this country, we know what's going on with this roller coaster of surges. And yeah, you're right. Nevada, Las Vegas was a lock. And then suddenly it wasn't. And so uh, they made the quick decision. Gary Bettman and Bill Daly, who I believe have done a fabulous job uh, not rushing to put something in place, not jumping the gun, right? Not just and putting a date to, uh, you know, like a month ago, they could have put dates to when this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. And they were taking their time to be sure and it's smart, and I think this is the first time since, like, 1926 that the Stanley Cup playoffs will only be held in Canada. What's her comfort level that the season will finish? No, I'm, not, I'm fine the positive. I do believe they can do it. I do believe they also, according to Bill Daly, 
you know, if obviously one player gets tested positive during the Stanley Cup playoffs, they're not going to bring everything to a halt and say, all right, guys, you can go home now. See, it was fun. We tried. But, I mean, it would take a significant outbreak. Uh, I just don't see that happening. I think they got the bubble thing down. Um, I think the players are going to be disciplined uh, to follow the bubble rules. And and not look to go out to you know break the you know break the rules cross the boundary do all that and we we have this similar talk right when we're talking about the NBA and what's going on in, in Disney World in Orlando even though that's just one location but um, I think these hockey players are serious and they know you know winning a Stanley Cup no matter what the protocol is in the end if they could be that team. It still counts. There is no asterisk. Also, let's keep it in Canada right now. Since we are discussing them, the MLB is still unsure if the Blue Jays can play in Toronto due to COVID-19. And they are, I don't know, just a week away from the season opening. Now, their first couple of games are on the road, but they will face off against the Washington Nationals in less than two weeks in their home stadium, granted, if they can play there. Canada has is averaging about 300 coronavirus cases per day uh, in the entire country. And so their government is devoted to keeping everybody healthy, which is why they've had this 14-day mandatory quarantine for anyone coming to the country, which is complicated for the Toronto Blue Jays coming and going or any team going in there to play against them. And it does seem like in the next 24 to 36 hours, we're going to find out if the Blue Jays Major League Baseball agree to essentially uh, a situation where the players are, uh, you know, arrive at an airport, bus to the hotel, and then never leave the hotel. Kevin, even for coffee, even for a walkabout, uh, as you I'm sure read, uh, anyone who violates those rules, it's a $750,000 fine. It's possible jail time. It's very serious, and I think the, the terms are essentially going to come from Canada. Take it or leave it, and if you don't want it, go someplace else. The Blue Jays have been looking at alternative sites just in case, you know, places like Buffalo. Uh, but it's amazing to me that we're this close to the start of the season. We don't even know where the Blue Jays are going to be in their first home game. Buster Only, ESPN MLB Insider, also on Maybe you've watched a couple of these stream games, which has been really neat to be able to watch Mariners Summer Camp on their YouTube channel. Or if you're a fan of another team, I know a lot of other teams have put theirs online, maybe even some exhibition games. Buster Only, though, saying he would love to see games without artificial noise pumped in. I would have loved to have seen it, and I hope that somewhere we can see it, games without the pumped-in sound. I would have loved to have that high school feel so that uh, you know the, the game microphones could pick up the conversation between the runner uh, and the first baseman uh, as he takes a lead. Uh, maybe a pitcher reacting to a call, close call from a, the home plate umpire. I would have loved to have heard all that, but I think that's part of the reason why they're doing this. Not only because the, you know the players have the natural flow and adrenaline uh, in terms of what they usually pick up from the crowd, but I also think they want to put a little mask over the, the conversation that happens on the field. Yeah, probably, probably. Um, Houston Texans star J.J. Watt posted a list of questions that NFL players need answered before training camps can open. The Texans are supposed to open the regular season Thursday, September 10th at Kansas City. But rookies for both teams are scheduled to report to camp on Monday for COVID-19 testing, so just a few days away. Watt said he has been part of four NFL Players Association calls with hundreds of players over the past 
two weeks. So he compiled this list of questions based on those concerns uh, voiced in those calls and uh, posting a list of unanswered questions to Twitter, making sure to emphasize that they do, in fact, want to play in 2020 if it's possible, but also noting here's what we know and what we don't know. We want to play the very first item on the list. We want to be as safe as possible. We have not received a single valid IDER, that's Infectious Disease Emergency Response, uh, from any team or the league. We don't know if there are preseason games or not. We don't know if there'll be daily testing, semi-daily testing, etc. We don't know how a protocol positive COVID test would affect contracts, roster spots, etc. Nothing has been agreed upon regarding what training camp will actually look like and how the ramp-up period will work. And finally, we want to play. Melvin Gordon, uh, running back for the Broncos, mentioned earlier in this week that they players still have so many questions. You know, the biggest concern is that we, you know, we get in the season and, you know, be there for a week and then, you know, they cancel it and just, I mean, I feel like everything is up in the air right now, so we don't know what's, you know, what's going on. You know, everything is still, you know, there's still questions that need to be answered and we're, we're a couple weeks out, which, which makes no sense. So we need to figure it out. You know, you, you know, you see a post here about, you know, face mask that's covering the mouth. Like, you know, guys are not going to wear that. So we have to come down to a solution and, and figure out what we want to do. Because, uh, you know, obviously I want to play, but it, it's a lot of it's a lot of health facts and risk that goes into this. And a lot of guys with families, you know, don't want to risk that. So, um, you know, if we could find a way to you know, to make it safe for everyone, then let's do it. But, you know, we need to come down with a conclusion for something pretty soon. Among the requests in the players' recent proposal were opt-out clauses for at-risk players, also players with at-risk families, and players who leave their team uh, after reporting if they decide not to play or feel unsafe. Players are also requesting a stipend of $250,000 if they show up to camp and everything is shut down because of COVID-19. That bumps up to half a million dollars if the season starts only to be shut down. The NFL responded to the NFLPA's counterproposal on coronavirus-related reopening protocols on Tuesday night, but a major unresolved issue between the two is whether COVID-19 should be classified as a non-football injury. NFL teams that place players on the NFI list are not required to pay those players, and opt-out clauses need to be figured out. We heard from a Sam Ocho, NFLPA vice president earlier this week that that was a big goal of theirs. Dan Graziano, ESPN NFL Insider, also on talk still ongoing with some of these items. Well, they're still ironing out, obviously, the protocols, the agreement between the NFL and the NFLPA on all this, but there are provisions in the memo that went out to teams last month that talk about how the NFL and NFLPA can have unannounced inspections of team facilities where they're going to show up and make sure you're following all the rules. Team employees are required to report violations. Players are required to report violations to the league and to the NFLPA. And in a player's call a couple of weeks ago, they were told that they could be subject to fines, punishments, if they're found to have contracted and spread the virus as a result of, you know, going out and eating at a restaurant and riding around in Ubers and doing things that are deemed to be kind of unsafe in terms of trying to to limit the spread of this. In the background of all these discussion, of, of course, is the rise in coronavirus cases in states like Texas, Arizona and California and the increasing possibility that those states might soon be implementing shutdown provisions that would limit large gatherings. So a lot of teams wouldn't be able to hold training camps if that happens. And an earlier agreement between the players and the NFL stipulates that teams are required to hold training camps at their own team facilities this year. And if any team cannot open its facility, no other team will be allowed to open its facility. 
An NFLPA database shows that 72 NFL players were known to have tested positive for the coronavirus as of July 10th. That's a really difficult number to put into context, though, because not every player in the league or even a very large number has necessarily been tested as of now. But the NFLPA has made this information public on its website. Milwaukee Bucks guard Eric Bledsoe tested positive for COVID-19 and is yet to make the trip to Orlando, Florida to join the team for the NBA restart. He told ESPN on Thursday, he said in a statement that I'm asymptomatic and feeling fine. Once I meet the NBA protocols, I look forward to joining my teammates in Orlando. Also encouraging people on Instagram later in the day yesterday to mask up and stay safe. Alex Rodriguez is among the bidders hoping to purchase the New York Mets and in a conference call Thursday called for baseball players to accept the type of revenue sharing system that is tied to a salary cap. And that prompted a rapid and passionate response from the players union, particularly Tony Clark. Rodriguez later stressed that he never said salary cap and wanted to emphasize that because Tony Clark already coming out and making a statement uh, in response to that. 15 women, this was uh, the really disturbing story that broke yesterday, who previously worked for Washington's NFL team, have alleged sexual harassment and verbal abuse by former executives and front office staff. The Washington Post breaking and reporting reporting this story yesterday. Over the past week, they reported their investigative findings to the club, and three team employees accused of improper behavior have since departed. Among those accused of misconduct are former director of pro personnel Alex Santos, former assistant director of pro personnel Richard Mann, and longtime radio play-by-play announcer and senior vice president Larry Michael. All three departed the organization within the past week. Others named in the report are former president of business operations Dennis Green and former chief operating officer Mitch Gershman. There are no allegations against owner Dan Snyder or former longtime general manager Bruce Allen, who was fired at the end of 2019 season after 10 years with the franchise. Both declined requests by the Post for interviews. Uh, In a statement, the team said it had hired D.C. attorney Beth Wilkinson to conduct a thorough independent review of this entire matter and help the team, quote, set new employee standards for the future. Here's the problem. It's not an independent review. If you are paying this person to investigate your organization, that is step one, right? The allegations span from 2006 to 2019, which is most of Snyder's tenure as owner. They can be separated into two categories, according to the Post, unwelcome overtures or sexual comments, and then requests to wear revealing clothing and flirt with clients to close sales deals. Uh, most of the women went on the on the record un, uh, anonymously under the condition of anonymity because they might have had non-disclosure agreements and they couldn't speak out. But Emily Applegate was one of the people that did come and speak out uh, and said that Felt like a dream job for about a week until this, until uh, she was made to feel incompetent. I had a, you know, week maybe or so that was great. And I was like, yes, this is exactly what I wanted and what was explained to me. And this is going to be great. Um, and then, you know, you get your first like screaming at you for something that you, it's not your fault. And then somebody makes a comment to you about what you're wearing and it just snowballs from there. And it really took most people no time to comment on my appearance. Oh, just what happened next for Dan Snyder? That is the big question. Previously reported that three minority shareholders were seeking to sell their interest in the team. So could Dan Snyder face repercussions for this? 
Uh, even if he does claim ignorance, ignorance, in my opinion, not an excuse in this situation. You're responsible for your organization and for the toxic culture that has been created there. That's a wrap for the hot list and the entire Blitz at Six Hour. Danny and Gallant coming your way next right here on 710 ESPN Seattle.